This is Matthew Wilcox, author of The Business of Choice, Marketing to Consumers' Instincts, and you're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer in 2016. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in the episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, we're joined by Matthew Wilcox, and we're going to talk about his book, The Business of Choice, Marketing to Consumers' Instincts. Matthew Wilcox is founder and executive director of the Institute of Decision Making, a part of the global integrated marketing communications company, FCB, Footcone Belding. The Institute of Decision Making was established to bring the findings from scientists who study human behavior and how people make choices into the practice of marketing, which is exactly what his book does. Matthew has more than 25 years of brand strategy experience that spans the globe and is a frequent speaker at business schools and at marketing and communication events. Matthew, congratulations on the business of choice and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you very much, Douglas. It's uh, great to be here and uh, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to me. And I should add that the book review company has named the business of choice the marketing book of the year for 2016. Congratulations. Uh, delighted to get that. Delighted to get it so early in 2016. So I've got another uh, another uh, eight months, eight or nine months to use that accolade. Actually, less than that. <laughs> another five, another seven months to use that accolade. Yeah, math, math is clearly not my strong point. <laughs> no, no problem, no problem. The uh, well, then after this year, you can just say it was. You, know, you can drop the for 2016. But that is really something. I follow that closely, and uh, I think uh, yours is the first winner of that award that I've uh, had on the show. So I've got to mention, though, the, the, the book was, uh, I know you never heard this before, but it was almost like a brain massage. <laughs> I learned a lot, and I, I felt smarter uh, having read it. Um, and it, your, 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 your book, it, it includes references to many you know, scientific studies, um, but it also includes several references to Homer Simpson and alcoholic beverages. So it, it really spoke to me, Matthew. <laughs> well, it's sort of, um, you know, choice, which is really what the book is about, is in every aspect of life. And um, I think I'm very lucky to have kind of been able to bring, I mean, there is nothing particularly clever about what I've done with it. I've used the brilliant work of so many behavioral scientists and actually the brilliant work of so many marketers. Because if you bring those two things together, if you bring this understanding of how people make choice and what, what we're learning, what we've been learning over the last 15 or 20 years about that, with the sort of with, with marketing which is happening out there, with examples from marketing, you get a great story. It's a story of human nature. It's a story of culture. It's a story of entertainment. And it's also a story of business success. So it's, um, I think it's, uh, it's I, I lucked out and, and, and got a really interesting area to, to write about and, and thoroughly enjoyed writing the book. Um, I wouldn't compare myself to Donna Tartt, but Donna Tartt said something like sort of no fun for writer, no fun for reader. And I had great fun writing it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and your, your sense of humor came through. Uh, just 
is the advancements in MRI technology what is is uh, bringing forth a lot more new information in the field? Uh, yes, no. I think um, I think it's a great adjunct. Um, it's also an area where there's a lot of debate about sort of what it really reveals. Um, and I think sort of it's a it's a field which is I mean it's part of a field in terms of understanding choice, part of a field called neuroeconomics. Um, uh, but it is, um, I think, it, it, like with, I think, in this entire area, it is it is much better to take a interdisciplinary approach. It is best to look at the full area of what's being learned from the broader social sciences. And I think sort of uh, what, what we're seeing from um, fMRI studies actually does bring something to that. But it is not the only thing. Right, right. Um, and at the end of the book, you, you do walk the reader through a lot of these um, things that they can use now to, to learn about this. That's right. And I think in the world of commercial market research, uh, people are wise to sort of expand and use, and use many different approaches. Um, you know, all of these new, I mean, some of them aren't so new now, of course, like eye tracking and pupillometry. But um, they kind of work best when you integrate them with existing programs, existing research that you do. Mm-hmm. So there are some fantastic findings from fMRI. I mean, there's a, a wonderful experiment um, which I think sort of really gets into an aspect of human nature and reveals it at a depth that behavioral studies probably wouldn't. This is an experiment by um, Hal Hirschfeld, who's now a professor at UCLA, at the Anderson School at UCLA. And it looks at how we make choices in the future. And it looks at what happens when you have people consider their current self, their present self, I should say, their, uh, their future self, a present other and a future other. So they're thinking about themselves now, themselves in the future, someone else now and someone else in the future. And what this the study suggests is that the sort of the 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 brain activity is more similar when you're thinking about yourself in the future to thinking about someone else than it is to thinking about yourself now. So this is a this is a really interesting insight to play with creatively and for marketers to think about. I think it adds a great you know. So it it it's it's not that it sort of is a whammo here's a kind of here's a, an amazing breakthrough thought but it just adds some context to the idea yes. of understanding how we make choices in the future so mm-hmm. i think i think i see it as sort of you know kind of bringing a little bit more depth and color to things um as much as turning things on its head yes yes you know there was a uh, dale carnegie quote that i thought about as i was reading through the book and there's this quote he said, which was, when dealing with people, remember you are not dealing with creatures of logic, but creatures of emotion. And then there were a couple other two, there are two others that just really jumped off the pages at it. One was by uh, Baba Shiv, and he said, the rational brain simply rationalizes what the emotional brain has already decided to do. And then uh, towards the end, uh, was a Robert Heinlein he, he said, uh, man is not a rational animal, but a rationalizing animal. <laughs> I just yeah. loved it. And uh, I just wanted to quote from one part of the book just to, to set the stage for the rest of the discussion. The business of choice isn't a science book. It's not even a business or marketing book in the conventional sense. It's not about brand management or how to put together a marketing plan. It's a book about how behavioral science and related fields cast light on human nature and how human nature affects our choices. It is a book 
about how and why people make choices and what that means for brands and businesses. Matthew, you say, uh, you go on to say that the purpose of this book is to encourage the kind of thinking that led to your idea for decreasing cheating in soccer. Please explain. <laughs> well, so uh, I went to a, a conference. So one of the things I really encourage people to do is um, try to build relationships with um, the behavioral science community. Um, and, and so I'm going to backtrack a little bit to, to your question and, and sort of or backfill a little of uh, some of some of what happened with me before I reached that point. I had a realization about 10 years ago that um, that marketing was is about getting chosen. It is. A, and, and, and if it's about getting guiding people to um, choose your product or choose the behavior you need them to do, if you're an NGO, that could be um, getting them to choose to use mosquito nets uh, or um, you know, choosing to include micronutrients in their diet. If, uh, if, you're a, if you're a brand company, it could be about getting them to choose your brand over another brand. Mm -hmm. And you, you actually make a point that you think that marketers should, use, should, should refer to choosers instead of consumers. I do. I do. And I think sort of there's a couple of reasons for that, which is, um, you know, most large companies now are very focused on sustainability and corporate responsibility. And um, really, we're not, I think, most of the, the clients we work with are not just focused on getting people to consume their product and consume more and more of their product. Um, partly because of the age we live in. I mean, you think about brands like Patagonia, which is actively trying to get people to uh, you know, repair their products rather than buy new ones. One of our clients is Levi Strauss and Company. And they focus a lot on how you can make your jeans last longer and how you can, you know, by sort of washing them judiciously, you can actually sort of get the, 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 the finish to, to sort of look newer and look sort of deeper blue for longer. Um, and, um, you know, I think sort of we live in an age which is not about just about consumption. It's perhaps as much about conservation as consumption. So using the word consume to describe the people that we're talking to seems to be out of step with where we are as a society. There's another reason as well, um, which is that marketing, in my experience, is not just about getting your product consumed. It's about influencing other choices as well. So it may be the choice to recommend a product. It may be the choice. I don't think, you know, sort of when I um, download uh, or when I watch a, a binge watch on, on Netflix, I don't think I'm, I'm consuming something. I'm experiencing it. Mm -hmm. But I am choosing to do that thing. So I think it's sort of a, a more interesting way to think about people through this lens of choice because actually that is what marketing touches. Marketing doesn't directly drive consumption. But what marketing can do and should do is directly affect and influence choice and also, very, very importantly, help people feel good about those choices as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a sort of a, a, an aspect of marketing which doesn't get enough consideration. So first, yes, marketing is all about influencing choice, but there's huge power in, 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 in helping people feel they've made the right choice and helping them feel good about the choices they've made. Mm -hmm. So... Let's get back to the soccer because we've got a lot of listeners in the UK. <laughs> so, and in, um, Europe. In, in in trying to understand uh, 
behavioral science, I started going to conferences, and one of them is a, a fantastic conference that happens every year called the Society of Judgment and Decision Making. And um, just before I went to that conference, I think this was about 2009, um, or it would have been 2009, uh, I grew up in Ireland and support uh, the Irish national team, so we're hoping to have a good Euros. Um, and um, Ireland had just, I, I, I watched a bereft in a bar um, in, Boston, in Washington, D.C., as, um, as Ireland got uh, knocked out of the 2009 or just didn't qualify for the 2010 sorry, World Cup in South Africa. Matthew, to watch the Irish team, are you required by law to be in a bar? <laughs> um, I, you are not, um, but it does help. Oh, because I thought uh, I was required to, which is why I, <laughs> that's where I always go. Yeah, I think uh, I think sort of you know actually watching watching football by yourself is uh, or soccer as you might say is is generally not a good idea. It's always good to watch it with 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 other fans, even if they're fans of another team. Okay. Um, and so bars are good places to do that. Thank you. I feel better but, now. <laughs> but um, and so Ireland uh, Ireland didn't qualify because um, the famous uh, French centre forward Thierry Henry. Um, handled the ball twice uh, and passed the ball across the goal to William Gallus, who scored the goal that knocked um, that knocked uh, Ireland out of the World Cup. And a couple of days later, I was at a conference where Dan Ariely, who of course is one of the most inspirational and brilliant behavioral economists, um, and wrote the book Predictably Irrational, was talking about research that he had done in the field of cheating and dishonesty. And what he'd found was that rather than doing the typical thing of getting people to read a statement of ethics um, or a statement that they were complying with something and sign it afterwards, you would have a much greater rate of success if you were to get people to sign that statement at the beginning. It sounds so obvious when you think about it, like so many of these insights from behavioral science, yet the world is full of forms that you read through, whether it's expenses forms or tax forms or whatever it is, and you sign them at the bottom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like uh, the when you uh, download some software and you click "I agree." You know what I'm talking about? Where yeah, the, sure. the terms of state. And I think it was uh, John Oliver who has the HBO show. <laughs> he was saying that you could put the text of Mein Kampf in those things, and people would go, "Yeah, sure, that's fine. I'm good with that." <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think sort of the point here is to get people to make the personal. I'm not, I'm not saying don't get people to read the thing. You still want people to read it, yeah. but get them to sort of make the personal commitment at the beginning, so it influences what they're seeing and what they're reading, rather than make it at the end. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that Ariely talked about was the importance of continual reminders of the ethics that you required of people. So the idea we had, and 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 Dan very kindly let me use his name to, to try and push this forward, was that we would approach all of the football uh, governing bodies with a suggestion that before every game at a tournament, each player would sign a statement at the beginning of ethics before they went onto the pitch. Mm -hmm. Just as you see, they get their, their cleats checked by one of the, uh, the, the, the fourth official before they come on. Um, now, we didn't have any success with this, and... Uh, um, perhaps given the state of FIFA at the time. Well, I was going to say, make up your own right. FIFA joke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I actually posted something on LinkedIn, which was a, 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 about a year ago, it emerged that, uh, because I kind of approached the Football Association in Ireland as well and said this would be a great thing to do. And they said they didn't want to, essentially said they didn't want to sort of, um, to cause any disruption or make a fuss. It emerges that uh, 
um, several years earlier, they'd received a, a multi-million euro um, grant from FIFA that, so that they wouldn't take this case to uh, to the court of law. But um, but that was that was a kind of an interesting practical example of. Uh, unfortunately, it's one that didn't happen. But you know, you can see as you learn more about these behavioral insights. I think the role of people like you and me and marketers to say, "Hang on a second, we could use this in this way. We could use this to help." people feel better about the choice to choose this product and this product. We could use this to influence behavior for the good. We could use this to help people save for the future. We could help this to help people practice uh, more healthy sexual behaviors or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think kind of part, of part of what's really interesting is when you bring these insights from behavioral science and match them with the skills that we have as creative marketers. Mm-hmm. Even as I was reading the book, uh, I was thinking about some things that had happened recently in, the, you know, the, in, the, in my work world, and I thought, that's why they were doing it. That's why these people are behaving the way they are. And then I was looking ahead thinking, oh, there's a few things I could be changing for my business as well as for um, some clients. Uh, let me, so it's, it's very actionable. One thing that John, one of the many things I wanted to ask you about, though, was you say brands, with a few glorious exceptions, are becoming less powerful. Why is that? Well, this is um, this is uh, there's a lot of interesting data on this, um, and um, uh, it, a lot of it comes from um, work done with the brand asset valuator, um, which is um, run by one of our competitors. Um, it's a great longitudinal study of um, brand salience and brand relevance. Um, and uh, there's a great book, um, which is called The Brand Bubble by John Gersmer, who runs that practice, runs a BAV consulting. And it really paints a, a, a not a, a terminal case for brands, but it sort of suggests that brands have lost a lot of their power over the last 20 years. I, I haven't got the exact statistics in front of me. I quote them in the book. Um, but the brand bubble is a book worth reading for people if they want to sort of get, um, you know, kind of, uh, get a full understanding of that. And I, and, and it's not surprising. I mean, I think we see this in our lives in many ways that just sort of in the past, it was for marketers often sufficient just to create a dominant brand and, uh, and the world did beat a path to your doorway. Well, and it also uh, makes me wonder if having more of a captive audience in the world through, you know, the media gatekeepers made sure. it a little bit easier. I, for sure it did. I mean, this is something that marketers are really trying to get a grasp on now. I mean, it's uh, partly because of disintermediation. It's about generally good things. It's inconvenient for marketers, but actually I think they're genuinely good things, which are, um, you know, consumer power or choose a power, I should say. Mm-hmm. The fact that, um, you know, there is much more transparency um, about sort of what we can find out. We can find out about whether a product is good or bad very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, so my point really was, one of my points was that sort of it, it, we live in a changing world. And one of the things which is, which is changing is as a marketer, you cannot just rely on the power of your brand in the way that previous generations of marketers did. Right. Um, right. And one of the things that I think is, uh, can be helpful to marketers in that absence of, of, of just that sort of raw power of a brand is being able to understand how people make choices and indeed how you can align what you need people to do to succeed, whether that is, as I said, choose your brand or choose a behavior with how their brain naturally works and how people naturally make choices. A mm-hmm. um, couple other questions I'm just dying to ask you. Why should marketers think less about being noticed and more about 
not being ignored? Um, so I think sort of part of that is, I mean, being noticed is, 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 is a good thing. Um, what I think I was really trying to get to that, to, to, with, with that point, and of course it becomes a couple of people have pulled me up on that, on, on that particular point saying, isn't it just semantics? Aren't they just pretty much the same thing? Well, that didn't, means they are reading the book and paying attention. <laughs> yes, that's true. Didn't you, didn't you just try and get a sort of a, a good soundbite there? But really what I was trying to get to was that sort of our cognitive processes perhaps are more about sort of don't ignore that thing. That thing could be dangerous or um, that is something to, uh, I mean, you know, what we have been very successful at, but people talk a lot about information overload. And while I, I can see that is a problem for all of us in some way or another, information overload has been cited as a problem for many hundreds, even perhaps thousands of years. In mm -hmm. fact, I talk in the book how Seneca the Elder talked about there being too many, too many, you know, a distraction of books. <laughs> when right. I think, you know, his library might, might have consisted of six or seven. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, in um, future, Alvin Toffler's Future Shock, he, he started this idea, he talked about, about information overload. This was when we were still living in a paper world. I mm -hmm. mean, digital had not even, you know, started to emerge then. And one of the things that um, human beings have always been, I mean, the way we work is by ignoring huge amounts of information. Mm -hmm. Our cognitive processes are, are really as much about sort of, you don't need to worry about that. Um, these shortcuts that guide our choices, which are really the sort of the, the main story of my book, are about this 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 stuff you don't need this stuff on the peripheries you don't need to worry about this is things that aren't going to affect you getting from a to b um and so so really we're we're sort of one way to think about it is we're really really good ignoring machines mm -hmm. um and um and you, you know, mentioned at one point that familiarity is a proxy for safety as it relates to uh, so many of these i should explain to the listeners so many of these things that you explain take us all the way back to uh, the caveman mm-hmm well, they do. Fascinating. Well, and again, I think we forget, you know, sort of um, marketing is obviously a large, about, a, a large amount about of tapping into culture. But I think sometimes we can forget the importance of tapping into human nature. Yes. yes. Uh, and that's, that's kind of, that's why I called the book marketing. And I did use the word consumer on the cover, marketing to consumers instincts. That was actually a ploy to tap into familiarity there. That's a word people use, consumer. Um, but um, the... But really kind of the, the, the way, the analogy I use is that just as the hand I used this weekend to bang a couple of nails, loose nails into our siding, the way I grasped the hammer was remarkably similar to how one of our predecessor homin, you know, hominids, uh, Homo habilis, or the handyman, uh, who lived over a million years ago, would have grasped a stone tool. The way I run to cross the road is the same as the way Homo sapiens would have run, an early Homo sapiens would have run 200,000 years ago um, if he was sort of trying to catch an antelope rather than catch a bus as I was. Mm -hmm. So our, physic, our, phys, our physicality is, is, is very, very similar to our, to our predecessors. We've also, so we've inherited that structure, but we've also inherited um, cognitive processes from them as well. And these cognitive processes go back many, many, many thousands of years ago. I remember talking to um, a paleoneurologist, somebody who studies um, 
uh, how how the brain has evolved by looking at uh, by examining fossils of um, specimens of early man, and asking her about sort of brain development. I said, you know, since a long time ago, since the ancient Egyptians, and her response was, that is essentially today in terms of brain development. So really, the key thing is that sort of the things the things that Babishev talks about this intuitive brain. That, that, that makes our mind up before our rational brain kicks in and then our rational brain rationalizes the choices, that is, that is something which has been with us for a very long time. And those mechanisms, those cognitive mechanisms which, which drive our choices today are the ones that drove our predecessors' choices. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, you know, if you don't, I think sort of we have, as, as marketers, we perhaps don't spend enough time thinking about those drives and as I like to call it, sort of the, how human nature affects how we choose things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, can you explain the, uh, I think you call them cognitive mechanisms and, and biases that make it so difficult for marketers to sell something related to the future? I think this might have been my favorite part of the book where you talk about the future as it yeah. relates to the human brain. Yeah, and... I mean, it, and actually, the Hal Hirschfeld experiment I mentioned earlier on was was one of those. I mean, it was was an experiment that kind of revealed um, a lot about how we make choices about the future. I think it's a, a hugely important area. One of the things I'm doing a lot more of over the last year or so is work with NGOs, um, and everything that that I think pretty much every choice that an NGO is trying to influence is about trying to get people to do something which has future benefits, which may not have very significant present benefits. Um, And that's a very, very difficult thing for people to do. Um, Not surprisingly, so for most of human history, generally taking the immediate reward was probably a surer, well, certainly was a surer route to surviving and thriving than taking the longer reward. Yeah, you talk about the now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, now is just a really, really powerful thing. And, and behavioral economists talk about how we're driven to take a smaller, sooner reward over a larger, later reward. Mm-hmm. Um, this is called temporal discounting or hyperbolic discounting. But essentially, it's that we discount benefits in the future, but we also actually discount pain in the future. Uh, and this one is kind of so revealing of all our human nature. I mean, it's one of those things which is really difficult, even when you know about these biases it's incredibly difficult to stop them from having an effect on your choices. So I'm sure you've been in the situation where you decide that, of course, I'm going to get up at six o'clock tomorrow morning and go out for a run. And when 5.45 rolls around and the alarm clock goes on, you just reach out and put on the, you know, put on the snooze button and shut the buzzer off. Um, and that's a classic example of us. You know, when, when, we were, when we were thinking about going for a run on the Sunday night, that was our virtuous future self was very happy to think about doing that. Not thinking about the pain. <laughs> Not thinking. That pain was discounted <laughs> to how we felt about it yeah. at 5.45 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we do the same with rewards. We will take that sort of, you know, lottery winners invariably take, I think it's about 89%, take the discounted uh, amount of money now rather than the longer-term payout, which after you factor for tax, will generally give them more money. Yeah, and I... I... Of course, I, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, oh man, this is exact. I, I, I much better understood uh, why uh, I see some things I do in the business world. And in my case, like we're helping clients with lead generation or content marketing and things like that. And that's an example of something where you may not get results tomorrow. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> it could yeah. be uh, in the next 12 months, but then it could be, it, it will continue over a longer period of time. And there's still this um, impulse to want to say, let's just go buy some ads. It's yeah. like they want that quick hit right now. And I just, you know, I can I can just think of all the listeners who are, you know, marketers trying to move their organizations uh, in, in a new direction, whatever direction it is, but there's so much change going on and people want to cling to the familiar and they want the, the quick hit. Uh, and it's, it's, it, you also talk about how it's a real challenge for people like in the investing business or the retirement business. It is. I mean, you know, sort of essentially, if you think about what I've just been saying, asking people to save their retirement is asking them to give up spending something now, which has greater value than even the same amount of money in the future. Uh, or, or a bigger amount of money in the future. And and you're also sort of asking them to sort of almost give that money to a stranger. You're asking them to give it to them to, to their future self. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising it's a challenge. And there are ways around it. Um, but to your previous point about marketers, I, I, there's one chapter in the book where I, I think I called it Marketer Heal. I um, think differently about, about how you work. And um, it was really sort of... Um, I, what my, my previous title for it was Marketer Heal Thyself, but we didn't end up calling it that. And that oh, is about oh, at the very end. Yeah, it was yeah. Sort of meta because it was it was explaining to marketers how, how you're going to be susceptible to these same That's problems right. yeah. that you explain throughout the book. So, so beyond individuals making decisions about the retirement, this is also something that affects marketers as well. Um, because, as you said earlier on, marketers often feel the pressure of getting short-term results and and designing their marketing simply for that short-term purpose. And uh, one of the things I quote in the book is um, in a chapter which is about uh, really sort of how how marketers should think differently about how we work. Because just as most of the book is about how these um, cognitive mechanisms affect the choices of the people we're trying to market to, marketers are humans. They also affect the choices we make. And uh, one of my colleagues, um, David Thomason, who's uh, the uh, chief strategy officer of our office in New Zealand, wrote a really, really good piece where he quotes Paul Pullman, the chairman of Unilever. And he sort of talks about how Pullman recognized, um, I think, and I'll just read this. He says, uh, Pullman said, it's easy to be a short-term hero to get tremendous results, very short-term and be off sailing in the Bahamas. But the goal for this company, and it's very difficult to do, is to follow a four or five year process. Um, and at the heart of Pullman's strategy was a particularly bold masterstroke. He moved away from quarterly reports, stating that since we don't operate on a 90 day cycle for advertising, marketing, or investment, why do so for reporting? And I think what he saw there was that the reporting was what was driving this short termism. And that's a classic piece, actually, of sort of understanding the influences on the behavior. Mm-hmm. so that you can then change the behavior for success. Yeah. The problem wasn't just the short-term thinking within the marketing and advertising circle, cycles. The problem was that the investment and the short-term results was driving short-termism in the company. Well, yeah, and I think that people rise to the expectations set for them, and they do what they're rewarded for. Right. Um, so let's talk about loss, <laughs> another great part. You talk about how losing something <laughs> appears to have twice the psychological impact of gaining something. Mm-hmm. And there was a uh, one quote by John Gourville, if mm-hmm. I pronounce his name right. He talks about uh, when marketers try to engineer the behavioral change necessary to get people to try new products, we typically tell people what they might gain, or we emphasize how our product is different and innovative. But we fail to consider and address what people may lose 
by That's changing right. their existing behavior. Can you explain more of that? Sure. I mean, you know, it's not surprising. New products are often our babies, and uh, just as with our real babies, we we think the world of them, and we want uh, we want to tell people how good they are. Um, and but we spent years studying it or getting it ready, and yeah. we're intimately familiar with it. Yes, that's right. And and, and his uh, his point is a brilliant paper, by the way. Um, it is called the Curse of Innovation or the Innovation Curse, uh, and it's one of the I mean one of the best papers I've I've read in many years, and. He talks about how what happens is that um, when you're developing something new, your baseline becomes how it is going to change the world, how it is different. Mm-hmm. And I think also to some extent, we all, you know, marketers often focus a lot on differentiation. I think that, and and you know, there's a lot written about it. I mean, uh, Byron Sharp in How Brands Grow talks about this as well, which is of course an excellent marketing book. Um, but you know, we we obviously we, we want to tell people, and if you do research, people will ask you how different is something. But actually, very often that might not be a good thing. It may not be a good thing. Sometimes guiding people towards a choice is is actually helping them feel that this choice is very similar, but an improvement on the choice they've been making before. Yes. If you are different, 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 then you're going against that natural inclination to choose the familiar, going against that natural inclination. To, to follow a choice you've made. Um, and I think, you know, there are a number of examples that, that do this very, very well. I think sort of one of the, you know, one of the cases I always talk about, I mean, you know, you will have had hundreds of people talking about Apple as a marketer uh, on your podcasts. But one of the really interesting examples is that, of course, Apple very famously talked about Think Different. They very famously had the commercial, which was his to the crazy one with uh, Martin Luther King, Einstein, Dame, Dame Nellie Melba, um, Marie Curie, all of these people who had thought differently and achieved great things. And that was a seminal thing in positioning Apple in, as, as the choice of people with a creative mindset. Mm-hmm. Well, they want to be but, considered differently. Indeed. But when Apple wanted to sort of take a chunk out of the PC market, which was the bread and butter of, of computing, their work was not about being different. In fact, it was about somebody representing a PC and somebody representing a Mac on the same screen. And there's one commercial that which talks where, 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 where the, 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 the Mac says, you know, oh, oh sorry, where, where the, the Mac says, I run Microsoft Office, I run Excel, I run, I run spreadsheets, I run PowerPoint. And really, I think what Microsoft were doing there was saying, we're the same. They were saying, we're, we, we, are, we, we have a, a, a different inflection. But the important thing they realized was that if they were going to get PC users to move to the Apple platform, they needed to make people feel that that was not such a different choice as they might think it was. Yeah, um, well, a bit of a no-brainer. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. In fact, if you can get your marketing to be a no-brainer, I think you've kind of you 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 have you are a long way away the road, a, a long way along the road to success. Yes, and there's a, a sizable part of the book uh, talks about that. Another thing that was interesting was you talk about. Uh, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out, and that's right. that's a real motivator mm-hmm. for people. Yeah, why, why is that? Well, again, it relates to loss. I mean, you know, so just to backtrack on loss because I haven't really done it justice. I mean, the whole area of loss aversion is is um, part of prospect theory, which is one of the cornerstones of behavioral economics, and uh, it was that theory that won uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Well, actually, Daniel Kahneman, his research partner Amos Tversky, had died some years earlier. Uh, the Nobel Prize for Economic Sciences. 
And, um, you know, it just looks at it, it just reveals how loss motivates human behavior or the prospect of loss motivates human behavior. So fear of missing out is a classic thing. It's, it's, it's almost not the loss itself. It's the prospect of it. Mm. So when you think about, am I going to miss out on something that other people are going to do? You get a couple of very, very powerful behavioral, uh, behavioral biases working there. The first is I don't want to miss out. And the second is the feeling of social proof that many people are doing this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and but 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 you know loss is is everywhere. Um, I mean the whole notion of scarcity, um, which has been used very successful with, by marketers, whether it's limited time offers, whether it is for luxury goods. I mean you know kind of communicating that that these products are made from you know sort of made by a dying breed of artisanal leather workers in the Pyrenees increases their value in cash flows. Yeah. So scarcity is very powerful, and that and and a lot of the power of scarcity comes from that feeling of. There's not much of this around. If I don't get it now, I'm going to lose out. Yeah, it's funny when I was reading it where you would explain these things and I would say, yeah, I'm perfectly guilty of that. <laughs> and there's even a part where you talk about flattery influences us even when we know it's insincere. And you, right. <laughs> you prove yeah. it. Now, I'm not yeah. going to give you insincere flattery, of course. Yeah. But um, <laughs> um, one other and thing. You, and if you did, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, can you explain – this is just another one that was uh, – just tremendous. You talk about uh, why allowing people to feel smart or attractive or, or confident that they can reach a goal is so helpful for marketers. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of parts to that. Um, and I, I kind of talk about how, you know, make people feel smart, attractive, or even lucky. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's some really interesting research done by a number of people, I think, including um, Margaret Gorlin, who... Um, did this uh, research where they, they kind of, they, they encouraged people to feel more attractive and then saw how that affected their choices. And they found that when people felt more attractive, they would make bolder choices. They were more likely to push the envelope a bit in their choices. I think they made bolder and quicker choices. Um, and, um, you know, I think it's, it's partly to do with um, when we feel one of the things that um, psychologists talk about is self-efficacy, the sense that we can actually do something. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, it encourages us to take on, if we feel we can do it, Albert Bandura, who was the kind of the, the pioneer of the field of, um, of self-efficacy, um, you know, sort of talks about how um, people readily undertake challenging activities they judge themselves capable of handling. But they'll actually kind of avoid ones they feel they can't handle. So to me, this seems to be a very powerful area for marketing, which is how do you make, how do you sort of, how do you encourage people to think that they're capable of making the decision we need them to make, that they have the, the knowledge or the resources to do that? Yeah, I mean, you think of weight loss programs and, and so many things where they think, oh, I can't do that. Uh, and I saw, right. I saw a lot of that in what you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, you know, so, so some of it comes down to social proof, giving people examples of, of other people who've done it but there's also little things you can do um like even just ask you know build into your sort of uh you know whether if, if, if for example whether it's a sales conversation or whether it's something on a website some questions that people answer and if you make those questions ones which they're most likely to get right so say for example you were offering a wireless data plan and you ask them what use the most uh data video or music most people would know it was video. Uh, 
And if people sort of get those things right, then they feel more expert in that area. They feel they feel better able to make the choice. And, and the likelihood is they will make a bolder and quicker choice. So if you can get people, I mean, I think it's a it's an empowering thing in a way. If you can help people feel more confident choosers, then they they make more confident choices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, one other thing I think it's really important for the listeners to to take away from this is that you talk about how what people think or or say they will do are very poor predictors of actual behavior, and it just brings to mind all the marketing research I see being done out there. You know, why else is that significant for marketers? Well, I think you know, sort of, and I, as I said earlier on, I'm. Uh, a believer in I'm not saying to marketers and market researchers that they should abandon all the research they're doing because um, that would be hugely disruptive. But apart from that, understanding why the, the the rational reasons people give for doing things is is actually it's good to know. It's not to say it is the only motivator. And I think a skilled interpreter can look at that and say, well, that's kind of what they're saying, but they're probably driven by this motivation beneath that. The very and best quality. Did you program. mention that like ninety to ninety-five percent of decision making is non-conscious? Well, this is an, a very this is a very commonly sort of stated figure. To be honest, when I talk to, I mean, there's a number of people. Uh, Gary Klein talks about how ninety percent of our of our of our decisions um, are based on intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, Gerald Zaltman uh, talks about how ninety-five percent of our choices are are, are non-conscious. Um, it's actually very difficult to understand. I mean, I, I'm not quite sure where the 95 figure comes from, but most uh, people who study this area would agree that, that, that and, and again, as I go back to the quote that you mentioned from Baba Shiv, that so many of our choices start from this point of our intu- from our non-conscious intuitions, yes. from things that we're, you know, things that we, we can't rationalize, gut feelings that come up and sort of set the bedrock for our choice. What, one of the things I like to say, which actually only struck me after I wrote the book, is that, you know, you know that expression, I'm going to take a gut check on that? Well, yeah. that's actually the, the wrong way around. Because what that suggests is we've thought about it logically, and then we use our gut to work out how we feel. Actually, I think what happens is the other way around. Our gut kind of drives our choice, and then we take a head check. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and Justify and actually, it. Or rationalize yeah, it. Rationalize it. That's yeah. fine. And then I, I kind of in the book, I sort of talk about how sort of our head checks like an auditor sort of but it's, a, it's actually a pre-Sarbanes-Oxley auditor who doesn't really, is not t- paying that much attention <laughs> as to how it signs off our choices. Right, right. Um, but, so, but, but back to your point about research. Yeah, I, mean, I can remember sitting in my career on the other side of a two-way mirror and just, you know, maybe it was poorly constructed research that the client had put together, but it was just asking these questions. And it's just, yeah, these people they were very uncomfortable trying to answer it because I'm not sure they knew. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And I think some of the... Even some of the techniques, I mean, so, so the, the first thing is that whatever the poor research is, poor research is worse than no research. Um, uh, but I mean, you know, so I'm not, I, as I said, understanding the rational reasons people give is important because that might, that might reveal some of the non-conscious narrative uh, uh, beneath, beneath those choices. Yeah. Um, but I also think people, you know, marketers do need to explore and are increasingly doing it, techniques that actually sort of get to answers without asking questions. Right. I just think it's dangerous when they're putting all of their confidence in what people are saying mm-hmm. about why they're doing for things. Sure. One last yeah. question I wanted to ask you to explain for the listener, which I thought was really helpful, is the technique that you use in workshops. This is going back to the issue of the future, which is just, right. it's such a challenge. There's so much, and of course, in marketing, there's so much change and we're 
you know, trying to help companies work through this. But it's just, it's terrifying. And having read your book now, now I understand better about why people are resistant to it. What is the technique you use in workshops to bring the future to the present and to deal with the the human's natural <laughs> short, yeah, short-term there's, orientation? Well, there's a couple of things I do, but I think one of the... Um, um, uh, well, one thing I've just started doing since I wrote the book is actually anchoring the future at 2019 rather than 2020. And oh, okay. that's, a bit, that's a bit like the 99 pricing thing. So that's kind of almost like saying this thing is 1999 rather than 20 bucks. It seems closer. Which probably. makes it seem closer. Exactly. Uh-huh. Um, but the other thing I do is I try to get people to take that point and work backwards from it. So So often I think we say to people, what's your plan for the next five years and tell us how you're going to get there. And so what I try to do is get them. (laughs) Yeah. What I try to do is, I mean, you know, make something real. So I have them think about, you know, your, your brand or your organization is on the front page of fast company. It's uh, 1919. And, um, the journalist has said, you've, you've done great things and insert your objective as to what that great thing might be. Mm -hmm. But then what I do is I ask them to sort of, to go backwards from that point. So rather than sort of trying to build up to it, tell us what, go back and tell us what was the thing that happened a couple of months before that interview. Mm-hmm. What it's was like the you're thing building that steps. That's right. Build small steps, but build them backwards rather than trying to build them into this invisible future. And the insight there is that if I say to you, let's say, you know, kind of think about 2020 from 2016, that sounds like an awfully long way away, four years away. However, I, I bet if I was to say to you, think about what you're doing in 2012, you, it, it would seem almost like yesterday. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book where you're talking about, you know, you realize whatever the point was, I think you said over the five years, you're saying, you know, let's say 2015, you're saying that was 2010, which seems like yesterday. Yeah. It was a, I saw, I, I, I got what you were doing there, Matthew, and I, I, <laughs> I'm on to you. Um, so uh, before we wrap up, let me ask you, if, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think, you know, it's really about understanding how humans naturally choose. And although that sounds like a more academic thing, it really does apply to marketing because as I say, marketing is about choice. And if you understand how we naturally choose, how our biology and our ecology affects our choices, then you can align your marketing with how the brain naturally guides our decisions. Yeah. It it just made me think, uh, Stop swimming against the tide. <laughs> You're so right. Don't, Use the don't, force that's already there. That's exactly right. And that's one of the things Robert Cialdini obviously talks about, you know, the, the, who's uh, a, you know, a magnificent voice in this space with his great books, Influence, and uh, yes, um, talks about. But I think the thing that, that really, as I started to think about this, was that what it, what it can do is, 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 is really your objective is to make your brand or the behavior you want people to embrace a natural choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it, uh, this is where I'm going to show my, my lack of understanding of different martial arts, but isn't there one, is it jujitsu or something where you, or karate or judo, where you're trying to use the force of your opponent to your advantage? I'm, I'm far from an expert. I think it might be judo, but yes, you're right. But yeah. A I mean, it's a similar kind of concept. Yeah, it, exactly. it struck me. Use, um, use the way, and your, 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 your idea of going against the tide is absolutely right. Use the way that flow is going. And make it work for you. Yeah. And yeah. and and as I say, I mean, it's kind of if you can make a choice seem natural, the most natural thing in the world. And I like this phrase, making your brand a natural choice, because I don't think there's any market who doesn't want their brand to be a natural choice. But yeah. if your brand is to become a natural choice, it needs to fit with the way that people naturally make choices. Right. Right. 
So what books have inspired your working career? And I, uh, you you mentioned many in the uh, many many books in your uh, in your book. What what yeah. are some that have uh, yeah, what are some I think the milestones I, for you? I put a list of about twenty five. I think in the back oh, of the book. And yeah. I, let me just add one thing. Now, now I've asked the question, but I'm interrupting. Uh, one of the complaints I hear from readers, which is uh, not readers, uh, listeners, is that they say, you know, the problem with your podcast is I my my reading list just gets longer and longer. <laughs> you know, and they they joke, but uh, it's like. At the very end of the book, you're doing exactly the same thing because you've then listed all these other books that uh, people would be uh, interested in reading. Yeah, well, I, you know, and I think, you know, I, my my book only came about because of of those books. Mm-hmm. I, so I'm eternally grateful to, you know, to the scientists who study these areas and the people who take time to write the books. Um, but the ones that have, um, you know, it's going to be a bit of a usual suspects list. Um, uh, one of the earliest books I read in the area was The Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz, uh, which uh, is, I think, a, a great book for people to to read about. His whole point is about human beings say they want choice. They say they'll be happy with choice, yet having too much choice very often makes us less happy and makes us um, worse choosers. Um, it is not always the case. There's been some interesting meta studies about kind of sometimes more choice can be good, but by and large, it's a good rule of thumb. Um Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman is is a really a great book to um, uh, take on vacation with you, and uh, it's just a you know he he sort of tells the story of our automatic processes, our intuitive processes through this um, uh, model of System One and System Two, uh, and it's a very very powerful book and a great kind of it's a great source of you know it it, it casts such light on how behavioral economics uh, came about and that's a, a good read. Um, then uh, I think sort of uh, uh, Predictably Irrational was another one of the early books by Dan Ariely I read and it's just a great easy read. But one of the books that actually had a a, a more profound effect on me was not uh, was a, a book called Traffic by Tom Vanderbilt and it's it's a book that just resonates with anybody who's I, I cycle more than I drive but anybody who uses the roads and is puzzled and often annoyed and sometimes enraged by um, uh, our fellow road users' behavior. And what he does is he, he looks at, he, he looks at a huge amount of behavioral research and, and, and research on social sciences to understand why people do the things they do in cars. And it's, um, it's uh, you know, what the great thing about it is, I think he, he tells a great story. And that was, that's a really important thing, I think, to remember when you, you start trying to bring some of this thinking from science in. If it's just dry science, people don't really engage with it and adopt it. Um, but if you can make it part of a bigger story, make it part of a story that people relate to, which is what Vanderbilt does in traffic, then that's a very powerful thing. Hmm. Did he find out that, uh, was he able to confirm that when people get into their cars and drive, their IQs do actually drop? Um, I'm trying to think. I think or, I don't or maybe know. just when it's raining. Yeah. I mean, but what does happen is people do. I mean, when you get into a car, you you, you become different. I mean, it's a it's a different environment, a different state, and you make choices in different ways. Yeah. Um, and um, you 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 regard the world around you differently as well. Um, so you know, he, he one of the, the there's a great study he talks about how if you um, are at an intersection and there's a car in front of you, if that car is a higher status car, say a BMW or a Benz or whatever it is, then people will pause a couple of milliseconds longer before honking the horn to try to get that car out of the way. 
Equally, if the driver of that car is a woman, they will honk that horn more quickly. And women do that as well. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, just kind of it's just a great uh, insight. It's a, a great sort of lens to look at behavior. So the great thing about that book is it, 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 it helps you understand a lot more about traffic. But it's just a great book about human behavior. Yeah, that sounds like a, a fun read. Are, are there any recent or upcoming books you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yeah, there's a couple. I'm, uh, I'm, I, I've just finished Misbehaving by, um, uh, by Richard Thaler, uh, which is, um, uh, he's you know, one of the founders of the field of behavioral economics. Um, mm-hmm. He was mentioned in the book quite a bit. Yeah, a huge amount. Um, and uh, it's, a really, it's a very, very good book. He's got some, there's some great things in there. He, he talks a lot about his work with the Behavioral Insights team, which is uh, in the UK, works with the, with the government in terms of bringing behavioral insights into their programs. And um, he got, he's got a great quote there, which I just kind of constantly, I have to I, I say it every time I give a presentation or do a workshop I talk about, which is, you know, if you want, to, if you want people to do something, make that thing easy. Uh, which is so, um, you know, kind of obvious. Um, and it's so easy to say, but it is so difficult for organizations to do. It is. And I think the thing is, there's a confusion, which is to make something easy is not easy. That's really the thing. It's kind of, it takes a lot of, you have to be quite rigorous about understanding what, it's much easier to leave it be hard and not look at those points of friction, not, not sort of find ways of solving them because to make something easy means you've got to solve many things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one, that's one, one good book. Another book I'm really enjoying is by a, uh, an academic called, uh, by a guy called Dilip Soman and it's called The Last Mile. And this is a, as people get a little bit more into the area, I think it's probably, I would, if, if I was, Coming fresh into the area, I would read books like Thinking Fast and Slow and Predictably Irrational first. Mm-hmm. But kind of, Soman kind of gives you a perspective of, of, of what it's like to be a behavioral scientist. He kind of, there's so much stuff in it, and it's, a, it's an easy to read book, but it just helps you sort of, um, if you were to read papers and things like that, it helps you kind of navigate those better. So he kind of, it's a little bit of a, it's, a, it's an insider's track for outsiders. Um, and uh, I'm enjoying that at the moment. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. Uh, all the episodes of this show, thinking fast and slow, predictably, predictably irrational, and influence. Yeah, uh, have those those books have been brought up so many times, uh, mentioned so many times. Um, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Well, um, I am on Twitter at at m wilcox, so that's m for Matthew, then w i l l c o x. There's two l's. And that's how I first reached out to you to uh, invite you it on is the show. <laughs> so and, it works. Uh, and, and, and to and listen, I, I, I should say it, it works. <laughs> um, there's also a, a website, the Institute, the Institute of Decision Making dot com, which is part of um, FCB's thought leadership websites. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, that's that's those are generally the the best ways. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll have to links to that at marketingbookpodcast dot com in case they brilliant write that yeah. down. And I talk at, co- at conferences a fair bit, and so if anybody's listening and wants to reach out, and if I'm talking at a conference there and wants to reach out and chat, I'd be delighted to, to talk to people more. One of the interesting things about this field is how it sort of opens up opportunities for conversations, and conversations that invariably, I think, lead to interesting places. Absolutely. The name of the book is The Business of Choice, Marketing to Consumers' Instincts. The author is Matthew Wilcox. Matthew, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, thank you. It was a, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. 
And that closes the book on episode 80 of the Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for links to all the things we talked about in this interview and access to free marketing guides from my agency. And while there, make sure to sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Now, I am so happy when I hear from listeners like you. It really makes my day when a, a listener contacts me with a suggestion or a book recommendation. Or if I can point you to the right book or other marketing resource, please let me know if I can help. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Or heck, just tweet me up using hashtag marketingbook. And please join us next time as we talk with Jean Bliss about her book, Chief Customer Officer 2.0, How to Build Your Customer-Driven Growth Engine. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.